You're listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at Help University, the University of Achievers. We'll be bringing you conversations with renowned psychologists and other health professionals that discuss a wide range of topics on mental health, psychology, and well-being. The Empowering Lives Podcast comes to you from the biggest psychology department in the whole of Malaysia. As we talk about the issues that matter to you most, stay tuned to this global podcast as we empower you to take away valuable insights and lessons that can improve your emotional health and well-being today. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Lives podcast. My name is Elaine Fernandez and today I'm joined by Sagambut MP and former Women, Family and Community Development Deputy Minister Hannah Yeo. Hannah started her political journey in 2008, being elected as the Selangor State Assembly person for the seat of Surang Jaya in the general election. After her re-election, she was sworn in as Malaysia's first woman speaker for the Selangor State Assembly in June 2013. Following the historic 2018 general election, Hannah was appointed as Deputy Minister of Women, Family and Community Development and continued in her commitment to work for gender equality and women's rights in Malaysia. A lawyer by training, Hannah served as a practicing lawyer in Australia and Malaysia before entering politics. She is the author of Becoming Hannah, A Personal Journey, and also hosted Project Thought, a six-part podcast that explores thought-provoking stories from the outliers of society. Today, Hannah and I will be discussing her experience in politics, how far Malaysia has come in progressing women's rights, and what we can all do to further that progress and ensure as a society based on equal opportunity, regardless of gender. Welcome to the show, Hannah. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Just to kick us off, we'd like to start with um, what inspired you to enter politics? When I was recruited into the DAP in 2007, I went into politics mainly because I wanted to help my friend Edward and I've created a, a whole uh, six episodes of podcast during the MCO to elaborate more on my thought process and what led me to make that jump into politics. But really, it came from a place of me wanting to help my friend Edward, who feels very passionate about politics, and at the same time feeling like I'm stuck here in Malaysia. I cannot migrate. I need to do something. And if I'm going to do something, what can I do? So Edward encouraged me to register to vote. Uh, and he said that's a very powerful right and a very powerful tool to bring about change. So I did that. And he then encouraged me to join a political party. He signed up with the DAP when Tony Pua came back. Um, so I joined him and we became members of Tony Pua's branch in Damansara. I joined the DAP mainly also for two reasons that I believe the DAP stands for. One is to fight against corruption and number two is to fight against race-based politics. I feel that Malaysia has a lot of resources, a lot of potential, but because of mismanagement, because of racism and corruption, we are not able to move forward. So these were my thoughts, these were my agenda in joining politics, and it's still true today. Along the way, and you've had quite the journey so far since 2008, um, did you face any challenges along the way that you want to share with us? 
Definitely. When I was elected in 2008, I was only 29 years old. And so having campaigned for two weeks, you know, when we finally won, suddenly we won five states, the opposition won five states. Mm -hmm. Then the reality kicked in. Oh no, I'm now a public figure. I My life is no longer my own. And I can't really decide, you know, to walk out of my house in any attire that I like, you know, because I'm now owned by the people. I am their representative. And so as a result, uh, my first two years, 2008 and 2009, was a bit of a struggle, not the actual work, even though the actual work was very challenging. But I think it was adjusting my mindset, having to get myself to accept the reality that I now have a higher duty I have a public duty and I cannot just give up anytime I want, you know. So elections term is three to five years. I cannot treat this like any other jobs. After six months, I don't feel like doing this. I want to tender my resignation. I cannot. That would spark a whole by-election and the people will be angry. My mother will not be able to go to the market anymore. <laughs> you know, so there were a lot of consequences. And so that's such a heavy uh, burden and heavy duty. And so the first two years, I struggled a lot with accepting this new lifestyle. I am not talking about, um, you know, having the YB title or, you know, suddenly you have uh, no time for yourself. I, I, I'm talking about uh, having to not be able to do anything you want with your own time. Right. Having to leave according to a calendar schedule. Like when you attend a conference, they tell you what time to break, what time to go into your next workshop, what time to discuss. I, I live on a timetable like that for 12 years. And so, you know, sometimes fatigue can come in and you just feel like, I, I just want to wake up and spend two weeks not doing anything. I cannot afford that. And so that was a real struggle within me uh, to accept that fact in the first two years. Now, my decision into politics also came from a very spiritual decision. As a Christian, I, I prayed for guidance. I asked God if this is what you want me to do with my time and my life. And so when I received a confirmation that, yes, this is what God wants me to do for this, and I, I went all out. So for me, adjusting my mindset, and my physical work, right? That takes time, not just a physical exercise, but real spiritual experience for me as well. Uh, and I constantly have to bring myself uh, to my knees to, to ask God to guide me because this duty is just not easy to do this for, you know, more than a decade. Yes. So that's how I cope internally with the stress and all that. I turn to God. Yeah, I think we sometimes don't really think about that when it comes to leaders, especially national leaders. Um, how regimented your schedules are and also how much under scrutiny your entire life becomes and sort of always having to keep yeah. sort of track of that and ensure yeah. you're representing yeah. what you say you represent and all of that. In terms of your work specifically, uh, you became the first woman speaker for the Selangor State Assembly in 2013 and you were also the youngest That's right. of any legislative assembly in Malaysia. Yeah. So um, reflecting on the past 10 to 20 years, how would you assess the progress Malaysia has made regarding women's rights and equality? Women's rights and equality. I think now um, we definitely have progressed compared to 12 years ago. We now have more 
women in politics, and we have a lot of younger women stepping into this political arena. So we have made progress. We also have seen in 2018, when Tun became prime minister again, he pushed the boundaries a little bit for women in key decision-making positions. So I'm talking about Deputy Prime Minister, First Woman, Chief Justice, First Woman. You know, of course, by then we we already had a women bank governor, but a lot of GLC positions went to a lot of, you know, key women uh, in in Malaysia. And so that, I think, was quite a significant progress. Uh, But of course, now after Sheraton moved, everything is gone. Yeah, but... You know, the the point is we can, we have the talent, uh, we have the people, they just need opportunities. And so uh, in terms of uh, women in corporate, uh, women in education, we have good rates, but not enough supporting structure to keep them long enough for them to excel. So I'm talking about women in the workforce, we are looking at only 56%. You know, that is half of the population, half of the women that we have who can actually work. And, and so we definitely need to strengthen a few things. Childcare infrastructure must be there, childcare in the workplace. Uh, COVID has accelerated the acceptance of working from home. Uh, so I'm quite happy that now it's quite a norm for people to talk about working from home. But, you know, pre-COVID, that's like a luxury, you know, or, or you, you need a really kind boss to give you something like that. Uh, flexi working hours are also very important for women because they carry multiple roles uh, at home and also you know outside. The other thing that uh, I think is needed is more success stories mm-hmm. of women who have made it. I think we we all need role models, and when you have role models who talk about not just the success but the downfall, the challenges, the struggles, I think it will help everybody feel. Oh, actually, I'm normal, uh, and I'm not alone. So definitely, if I compare my time 2008 and now, mm-hmm. I I felt lonely in 2008, but I no longer feel lonely now. And also, I think you meant, as you mentioned, the changing nature of sort of workplace norms. What can be done by employers to be more supportive of their women employees into becoming leaders or taking on more decision-making positions, um, apart from sort of the structural changes with flexi time and uh, working from home and so on? Uh, what can employers do better today to ensure that there's more diversity in key decision-making roles? I think it's very important for um, employers to understand that being productive is more important than just clocking in. You know, as long as they understand that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're working from eight to five, as long as, you know, you meet the deadline, you produce the results, you hit the sales target, I think that's more important. Those days, we talk a lot about clocking in. There there will be certain jobs that will still require presence, physical presence. And I think we cannot avoid that. But in a lot of other roles, people with WhatsApp, with technology now, you know, we are constantly at work. We don't clock out at 5 p.m. when we are at home. You know, you have to respond to WhatsApp messages. Uh, Back then was just email. Now you have messages. Now you have different social media so you're constantly working. Uh, I think the challenge now is uh, employers who promote work-life balance. Uh, when you do that, your employees know that you actually care for their well-being. You are concerned about the long term. 
goals for them, goals for the company. And at the same time, you want to make sure that they are okay, their families are okay. When employees can see that care coming, it takes a long process for them to even consider leaving that role. And so these are investments that you cannot measure it by just how many minutes or they are in the office. You know, so learn to see beyond that. Um, as an employer myself, I do a lot of different catering to the different needs, different seasons that my, my staff uh, walk into. You know, when they come in very young, they are single, they're not married, and then they become mothers. Uh, and, and that's a season that I need to adjust myself. I walk through that myself. So I'm more sympathetic. I'm more understanding in that sense. So, you know, we, we try to do all this. We, we try to make it woman-friendly. Yeah. Uh, the infrastructure is there to help them cope. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I must say that you, you need not just extend this to women. There are a lot of young fathers today who also carry the equal load. And that's why when we are talking about childcare in the workplace, I say even if you're you have majority male staff, still provide this because we want to promote shared parenting. Yeah. Uh, you know, today you need both fathers and mothers to raise the child together equally. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the thing about the discussion on women's right. Sometimes it kind of misses out the fact that couples are a pair and both yeah. parties need the space and the time to be able to support each other effectively. From an education standpoint, what can we do sort of as educators and universities to encourage and empower young women to be willing and able to take on some of these important roles in society? I think we need to first remove stereotyping people uh, the mindset usually, you know, they think that if you are not married at a certain age, there's something wrong with you. I am all for family institution, but I rather we not force women to go down that path if they are happier on their own. Uh, sometimes being single is definitely more empowering than being stuck in a very violent marriage. And so we need to start Talking about things like that, you know, it's okay to be single, mm-hmm. um, you know, because domestic violence is all about that, being trapped in a place where, you know, you cannot escape. And so we we really want to empower women and you need to get this right, even when at, at the point of, you know, them pursuing an education, yeah. that you don't have to settle down if you don't want to, you know, it's perfectly okay. And we have so many uh, women today like this, and we need to start talking about this infrastructure for single women later on. Of course, we now talk about childcare uh, for those who are married, but you know, what about the supporting structure in place for women who do not get married? And that population is growing too. Yeah. So I think this kind of stereotyping needs to be removed when they are pursuing an education so that they know these are their options. They never feel pressured uh, to do what other people are doing. And from the university's perspective, is there anything internally that we can Sort of do in terms of our education system, in terms of the things that we emphasize in class, for example, uh, to help people or women see the different possibilities that are available to them, apart from just certain jobs or certain lines of work that are stereotypically female. Yeah. If that, there's one thing that education institution can do, uh, and they must do, is to emphasize on the need for counseling. 
Uh, and we need to start making this as a norm. So we need to start promoting this as though it is a necessity and not just because you are having a problem. Uh, and so those days when we are in school, because you see when they are in school, they are always told to go to the disciplinary room for counselling if you yeah. get into trouble. And so when they go into college and university, this is your chance to fix this and reverse this pattern. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you can reverse this and tell them, you know, for your own mental well-being, it is always good to talk it out to somebody. When you're married, it's always good to walk through marriage with another couple. And, and so people learn that you don't have to struggle on your own. You can actually get help and it's okay to get help. Getting help is not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. I think that is promoted in Asian culture. You know, sort of a lot of these things are the ideal situation, right? So employers putting their employees' needs um, as a priority, um, you know, creating structures that are supportive and so on. Uh, and I think in terms of awareness, more and more of us are recognizing the need for this. Um, but how do we take that awareness and actually convert that into genuine change? Because I know this is a conversation that a lot of employers have and a lot of employers agree, but the stimulus to actually do something about it and make that change, how does that happen? That's, that's why I think you need um, you, you need to create more activists. Activists who are not just walking on the streets, but activists who are fighting for your right in the HR room, you know. And the more we talk about it, the more people see this as a norm. Like, you know, it took a pandemic to cause the nation to, to look at working from home. Mm-hmm. I hope we don't have to pay the price for other things. Uh, but this, this is the mindset shift that we need to go into that in the long run, if we constantly talk about becoming a developed nation, these are some of the mindset change that must happen, the infrastructure that must kick in. If we want to be a first world nation, uh, you know, we today we don't even have a recognized paternity leave. Yeah. Fathers still have to take leave uh, and apply for leave. And sometimes it may not even be granted for them to care for their wife the first three days of delivery. So, you know, we're talking about things like that. So we, we need activists. We need activists in the family, in the office, colleagues who see this and and I have to ask, you know, I don't think this is right. Uh, And and we need to speak up on on that because for the long run, as long as the family institution is not championed, all other reforms, all other institutional changes have no meaning if you don't fight for the core institution. Mm -hmm. So we must do everything we can to help people make that core family institution work for them you know and it starts from something like maternity leave paternity leave you know a young child a toddler probably falls sick maybe six times a year or 12 times a year because of you know running nose flu and all that and every time they have a temperature now they will not be able to get check into any taska or tadika because everything is about temperature check you know so if we don't adjust to this all their annual leave will be used up as sick leave caring for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're not caring for the mental well-being of your staff. To follow up on that, you know, um, this is something that I get a lot of questions about from my students, especially because they are very passionate about creating uh, change and they see the issues and they, they want to get involved. But I think what maybe we are lacking is sort of a bit of a roadmap on how somebody can actually become an activist, what does that mean? 
Um, I know there's different types of activism okay. and different levels of involvement. So what can people do if they are keen? Uh, the best thing for a student to empower themselves is by two methods. One is internship. Number two is by volunteering. And so find out, number one, what is your passion? If your passion is children, find out what aspect of children's rights you want to learn from. There are so many NGOs. You can go and volunteer and intern with even parliamentarians uh, or you know policymakers, researchers in these areas. Uh, only when you become a practitioner, that means you are actually doing the day-to-day work, you observe how is it like. You have an idea. You know, you don't just graduate with a paper. You know exactly what will happen after graduation. I know where I need to go to apply for a job. And so we are living in a time like today where people are so open to having young people come forward to intern, to be a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that space is always there. It's about you finding the right person to mentor you. That's very important because if you learn the wrong thing, then it's disastrous. It will turn you away if you have a bad experience forever. Mm-hmm from championing that cause. So these are the two things I think works very well with you know my interns when they come in. Uh, they, they are not sure whether politics is for them. Then I say, you know, just, just volunteer for two months. Mm. Only when you are a practitioner, you actually do that work and not just reading from website or reading from paper, you have a better idea. And with better idea, better information, it helps you make informed decision. Yeah, so you go in more prepared. For younger people, it's more finding those opportunities to uh, find which direction they want to focus their energies on in terms of making change. And then for for those of us who are already in the workforce um, and see that there could be improvements, for example, in terms of how companies might be handling certain situations, like like you mentioned, with regard to parents and, and so on. Um, how can we stimulate that change internally, if at all? Because obviously we're still governed by HR policies and all of that kind of thing. Is there anything that private citizens can do to try and make changes within their environments? I think it's very important that we don't stop knocking. Sometimes it may be stuck at the HR, but maybe the top bosses don't even know. Or sometimes it may just be that particular individual who has blocked you. So it doesn't always have to start with a petition, an aggressive petition. Sometimes writing an email to tell your challenge, your struggle. And this is what I like when I'm dealing with complaints. I'm always more receptive when the person doesn't just complain, but the person proposes a solution, Mm -hmm. uh, a workable solution whether it's long-term or short-term. And so for you to want the other person to listen to you, you need to also put yourself in the other person's shoe. And so there must be give and take, especially when you are talking about promoting a new thing, a new culture in that institution. It's going to take some resistance for sure and a lot of adjustment. So we must always try to to bring that 100% proposal or solution to the table. Maybe not 100% will be accepted. Maybe 50% or 40%, we are still making progress, you know. So I I think engagement is so important, making each other understand where we are all coming from. Because at the end of the day, we just want work to work for us. You know, if you don't cater to help the employees who are efficient, the employees who are performing, you're going to waste more money on retraining. True. So it's, it's a chicken and egg thing. 
uh, if employees are productive and if employees really work hard and bring value to the company, there is no reason why the company would not want to improve things for you because it's to their benefit that they do that. So I will say don't always start off with, you know, a very threatening petition. You know, always start with a suggestion, an email. Can I have a chat? You know, people are always more open when you say, I am not coming to complain, but I'm coming with suggestions for improvement, you know. So it's, it's about really how we say things, how we present those things, yeah. Drawing on your own experience and also from the fact that, you know, you came up as a young woman through the ranks, um, what advice would you have for young women who are already taking this path uh, but are facing a lot of challenges that come with one being a woman and two being young you know having been in a leadership position myself I, as a young woman I did encounter some you know initial prejudice and all of that about how competent you would be or you know how capable are you of doing your job just on the basis of youth for example uh, and that's obviously something that's quite cultural to Malaysian society where there's a lot of respect for it according to age. So how would you, what kind of advice would you give to young women who might be on this path uh, but might be encountering some pushback on account of their demographic? My first advice is not to give up. Changing a course can take a long time and it requires, you know, so many people agreement partnership to make things happen. If I look at my own political journey, right, 12 years, I've lost so many friends through defection, people who were together with you and then they move away uh, and then they become your opponent. So, you know, you must identify your cause in the very beginning. I think reassess your conviction, find out exactly what are you championing. Is the thing that you're championing for yourself or for others? Because if it's for others, then the likelihood of you giving up will, will be less. Because if it's for yourself, it's very easy to just walk away when you don't see the outcome. Yeah. yeah. So I think always reassess your conviction and know the cost. The cost must not change over seasons uh, and even the loss of partners. Uh, you need to be steadfast. Now, number two, people who are in this struggle must always be able to raise another person to continue the fight. So sustainability to me is everything. Mm -hmm. If you are a manager today, everything that you're doing today can end the moment you walk away. Or the moment you die, there will be no sustainability yeah. if you don't train a new person. So in everything you do, always make sure, even if you're a junior, you can find somebody more junior than you to help out, to prepare them for that role, for that transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so empowering doesn't always have to be structure. Um, empowering can be just impacting another life to continue that race for you when you stop. To the women of all ages who are tuning in, what would your advice be to them on how they can create a life that is purposeful and meaningful to them? You know, sort of independent of societal expectations and barriers that we might face. Yeah, I will give you a spiritual answer because that's the only answer I know. And I don't want to cook up another another story, you know, because <laughs> it's about life lesson. Yeah. So for me, really, I, I just live by two principles, to love God with all my heart and with my entire being. And number two, to love my neighbor as I love myself. Mm. And so there are three people there that you need to love. 
to really walk life in its fullness. One is to love God. Number two is to love your neighbor. Number three is to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And so many times women care for so many people and they neglect themselves, mothers. I've known so many mothers who will buy insurance for their kids, but they forgot to buy for themselves. And, and so sometimes uh, for us to take care of the world, we need to make sure that our basic care and our basic needs are also taken care of. That's very important because you can only love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Now, for people who don't love themselves, they are not going to love their neighbors, you know, so that chain effect, that's why we can never understand why the person is so selfish because maybe if you look deeper, the person is neglecting themselves in the first place. People come with different experiences, different challenges. I think for women, we are we are more patient in uh, as a listener. When you see a friend or somebody who is really having a tough day or behaving in a way that you cannot understand why you behave like that. I think empathy, sympathy, all these are very important because maybe we just have not walked in their shoes. We don't know what, what they are struggling with. And so when, when we are able to put life in this perspective, it's really about loving these three beings, God, your neighbor, your fellow friends, right? And, and yourself. Only then, you know, you will discover, hey, this is this is my purpose. This is this is what I'm meant to do. I'm here, meant to here to just encourage you know these five people to walk through life with these two people. Or you know, for some mothers, I always tell mothers: if you have to quit your job and be a housewife, don't despair. I think investing in your children in their childhood is such a great investment. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you get it right, they hit off running. Mm-hmm. If we we take shortcuts, they struggle. They continue to struggle until they're teens. They continue to struggle even when they are young adult, and eventually bring that into their own marriage. And so there is no shortcut. Take that time to invest in people. If your entire purpose is just to invest in your daughter or you know your two your two sons, for example, you would have achieved great purpose in life when they turn out you know, contributing to society. Sometimes our contribution may not come directly from our own hands. Yeah. It can come from the people that we nurture. Okay, thank you so much for that very insightful ending and I think an important one for all of us to remember uh, that there are many different ways in which people can contribute and also remember that really love is the core of it all and should be the focus for all of us if we are intending to make a proper change in society and in ourselves. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Elaine. And thank you for listening to this episode of Empowering Lives. Be sure to check out all our previous episodes from this and previous series, which can all be found on Spotify and Xtra.fm. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the Empowering Lives podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at HELP University, Malaysia, the University of Achievers. For more information about HELP University, visit www.help.edu.my and learn about our world-class programs and mental health services. Thank you for listening. And remember, together we can empower each other to build rich and meaningful lives driven by purpose, vision, and values.